Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer's Sermon Podcast. The readings appointed for this sermon are from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 28, verse 5 through 9, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 12 through 23, the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 10, verse 40 through 42, and Psalm 89, verse 1 through 4, and 15 through 18. In the name of God who creates us, reconciles us, and sustains us. Amen. Good morning. morning. Once upon a time, there was a man named Saul from Tarsus, a city on the coast of the Mediterranean where modern-day Turkey is now. Saul was a very devout Pharisee, you know, the ancient Jewish sect known for strict observance of the Jewish law and their traditions. You know, you might say upholding the one true religion. Saul was also a very passionate person, you might say even fanatical. He gladly participated in the persecution of the early Christians, for example, He was very much involved in the stoning of St. Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. And then one day, on the way, on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus to hunt down any Christians that might be there, God intervenes and has a heart-to-heart talk with Saul, more than a talk. Saul was literally knocked off his horse and blinded by the light of truth so that he might see. He never met Jesus previous to this, but now he gets to know up close and personal the resurrected Jesus Christ who gets in Paul's face, big time. He repents, he makes a 180 degree turn on a dime. Now after his conversion experience, he went to Damascus where he was healed of his blindness, and he was also baptized. New eyes, a new person, and even a new name, Paul. Now seeing himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul then passionately spread the gospel all over the first century world. And wow, did he, with vim and vigor, As it turns out, he is responsible for about half of all the New Testament writings with all those letters he wrote to all those churches that he started. And this included today's letter to the Romans. Being polite, leading up to his very first visit to Rome and also the Christian church there, he lets them know he was coming. And, very importantly, he wants to let them know his theological understanding of the gospel. Paul proclaims that because we live under the grace of God, quote, sin will have no dominion over us. For Paul, God's love is all about grace with a capital G, God's good news of grace. God loves us all unconditionally. Grace is God's favor towards us, all of us, anyone, everyone, 
unearned and undeserved. It's an outright gift and it's free for the taking. We get a free pass. As the hymn says, it's truly amazing grace. Now to borrow an image that Phil used in his sermon a couple of Sundays ago, God saves us by throwing their loving self into our arms, into our arms, trusting us. We've got more grace than we know what to do with. And it's totally out of balance, you know. In chapter 5, Paul tells us that while the wages of sin are paid out proportionately, they are dwarfed by a grace that's not proportionate. It's immeasurable, overwhelming, and abundant in comparison. And all we have to do is say yes. Do I hear? Amen. I love it. Baptist church. However, there's a caveat. Paul is concerned about some unintended consequences. In the very first verse of today's reading from chapter 6, he, he asks, what then are we to do, or, or what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? Then in today's verse 15, he asks another what then question. What then should we sin because we are not under law now, but grace? By no means, he says. He wanted to make sure that this radical idea of redemption through saving grace did not get out of hand, did not backfire into some kind of bedlam. Concerned that people would not just see it as a free ride, but a joy ride, a license to sin. Not exactly. To Paul's way of thinking, saving grace has ethical implications. Ethical implications. And to do that, to make that explanation, Paul uses the analogy of slavery. It's something that everyone in the Roman world could relate to. I mean, like one out of five folks in the Roman Empire were slaves. It was commonplace. He makes reference to it, for example, like eight times in today's short reading. So the, the Jewish contingent in the Roman church would recall, of course, the Exodus, their escape from slavery in Egypt. And the lessons learned while they wandered in the wilderness as lost souls. And then finding the promised land the challenges and the responsibilities of what it means to be free. Now, they would have certainly been relieved of not having to perfectly meet the law. You know, the Old Testament Ten Commandments and all the many, many, many burdensome, oppressive, interpretive rules and regulations that went with it. They'd been relieved greatly. But so that we don't get the wrong idea, the New Testament summary of the law to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, well, that's not a cakewalk either. As a matter of fact, that may be even more difficult to comply with, to meet as a goal. And that is because no one is perfect. 
And therein lies the conundrum of being a human. Paul reminds us, therefore, that grace is possible because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. You could say that we win by being lost and then found by a God who falls for us by graciously hanging it up. In Paul's explanation, he presents two and only two forms of servitude or slavery to choose from. There aren't, there aren't any other options, just two. And the, one of them is the downward path of no-win sin leading to the bondage of death, separation from God, separation from love. Paul says not to allow sin to rule in our mortal bodies. Paul says not to allow sin to rule in our mortal bodies. Well, Paul, that's a great goal, but gee, you should know better. Because he did a pile of sinning himself, right? And he knew that because later on he describes his own inner conflict in chapter 7. And he says, and I love what this is one of the really cool lines in the Bible, I think. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, wretched person that I am. So while Paul means well, trying to be a good person by his own ability, he was ultimately defeated, ultimately defeated by this problem of sin. Paul then asks, who will rescue me from this body of death? And for Paul, there is only one solution. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he sums it up by saying, so then with my mind, I am slaved to the law of God. But with my flesh, I am enslaved to the law of sin. Now, how Freudian is that? <laughs> he was hundreds of years before Freud. Now, Paul describes the second path as choosing the servitude of righteousness, of doing the right thing. Paul actually invites us to surrender like he did. Now, my own conversion experience in comparison to St. Paul's, it just just pales in comparison. But it did involve surrender. I remember saying in my mind, help me Jesus, I give up as I made my own leap of faith. And I'll be happy to talk to you about that at some other time. But Paul asks us to surrender our minds and our bodies and our spirit for doing the right thing, righteousness, to result in a changed life not only our own changed life, but ch helping change the lives of other people. You could kind of capsulize this by saying, while we are involuntary slaves to sin, we can be voluntary slaves to righteousness. Sin and death versus God and life. Now, earlier in verse 4, Paul says, 
by virtue of our baptism, we might walk in newness of life, our baptism. And it says, as it says in our baptismal covenant, to seek and serve God in all persons, loving our neighbor as ourselves, to strive for justice and peace among all people, and respect the dignity of every human being, to reconcile, heal, liberate, and serve. But our one-time baptism does not ensure, it does not ensure that we will do the right thing each and every time, all the time. And you know, that is why we frequently restate our beliefs, pray, sing, confess, and celebrate the Eucharist together like we're doing right now. But what I want to know is this. Are sophisticated sinners like you and me in this day and age expected to really freely choose to be enslaved to God? I mean, isn't that corny? Is it? Is it a cliche? Is it old-fashioned? Is it worn-out theology? Is it some kind of catch-22? Well, to paraphrase one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, he says, is it really true that we are slaves? Can we be slaves, we who of all people are so much our own masters? And the answer, Buechner says, is that of course, we are slaves precisely because we insist on being our own masters. You know, that is what Paul is talking about, to give up on being our own masters and also to be sanctified, to be set apart, which is what that means, to be and also to do service. You know, this, this might sound countercultural. That's kind of why I like what Melanie said last week, that we're called to be a, a cohort of Christian weirdos. <laughs> to walk in love and to do the right thing, not the expedient thing, and do it out of gratitude. Because I like to say that although grace is free, it didn't come cheap. It didn't come cheap. Grace is transformative and it implies a responsibility. So what do we do when we discover a loving God, a loving God jumping into our arms, getting in our face? I mean, we see God in other people. And that's a tough nut to crack. Answers to questions like that are best done in a community. That's why we're here, isn't it? Amen.